This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. This season, we've talked about change in different ways, from broad theories of change to the particulars of practices that teams or individuals and organizations might integrate into the work of building and transforming systems. One truth woven into all those discussions is that at the end of the day, systems change is people change. Systems are made up of people, and it is people, individuals, you and I, that daily make decisions, large and small, about how we shift dynamics or uphold the status quo. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with two remarkable and seasoned leaders of organizations in our community of practice who have offered to share their stories about what they are leading toward and how they are navigating the complexities involved in shifting mindsets about the what, the why, and the how of our educational systems to center equity in the lived experience of young people. Hi, my name is Marie McIntosh, and I am the president and CEO of Employee Indy. Hi, my name is Jenny Niles, and I'm the president and CEO of The Works DC. Jenny, Marie, thank you for joining us today and for your willingness to share insights into your personal and professional journeys. To start us off, I want to talk about the changes you both are working toward in Indianapolis at Employee Indy and in Washington, D.C. at CityWorks DC. Ultimately, what inequities are you and your community facing and what change are you working towards and why is that change important to you personally? Marie, would you kick us off? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Kyle. The change that we are working toward at Employee Indy is rooted in the inequities that we face in our community in Indianapolis around economic prosperity, really. The issue that we have in Indianapolis is that we are 47th out of 50 metros in terms of those who are born poor are likely to stay poor in our community. And we believe that's not acceptable and that we need to work toward making that change. Rooted in that issue of economic inequality, the lack of economic mobility, is the lack of educational attainment that exists for some portions of our community. There's a lot of untapped talent in our community, a lot of young people who are being left behind, a lot of adults who have been left behind. In Indianapolis, we have roughly 3,000 students in any given year in high schools across our community, and only 440 in a recent report, Black students made it through the traditional education pipeline. And that is 11% of the overall population of Black students, for instance, in Indianapolis. And that is well below the representation that exists in our community. We're at about 30%. So it's those types of things that have to change if we really want to be a community that is full of economic prosperity. The other thing I want to say is that you asked me about, you know, what we are doing to work toward making those changes. That's just the issue. What we're doing to, to make change is to focus earlier in the pipeline of talent that exists in our community in the high school space, how can we better connect 
opportunities that exist in businesses to things that are happening in the classroom? And how can we make education more relevant for young people in our community so that they don't fall off and lose some of the opportunities, especially with a lens on equity? The reason that this is all really important to me is simple. I grew up with a mom who was a teacher and a dad who was a pharmacist, and they were very much about being involved in community and making your community better. And certainly through their lenses growing up, I saw lots of inequities and they had a lot of social justice about them and the way that they operated. And I think I've carried that on personally and really want to see Indianapolis be the inclusive, thriving community that I believe it can be. Thank you, Marie. Jenny, what about you? When you look at Washington, D.C. and the inequities that you and your community are facing there, what are you seeing and what are you working towards? And what is your why in this work? Thanks, Kyle. This is a treat, and it's certainly a treat to be on the same podcast with Marie, who I think so highly of and want to emulate. <laughs> so I appreciate that. I think that one of the ways to describe my why is I was lucky enough to start a school in 2004, and we started with four, five, and six, and seven-year-olds. And in 2004, they started, and then they graduated from high school, and now they are in their mid-20s. Um, and I have really spent my career tracking that first group of students and seeing what challenges they faced when they got to middle school because the school that I started went all the way through high school. And then after they graduated from high school, many went off to college um, and came back to D.C. and many stayed here. But what I really saw was how difficult it was for folks after high school to make the journey between high school and getting a really good job. D.C. is one of those places that we sometimes describe it as the D.C. paradox. We actually have a booming economy, but it's not our local young people who are getting all of these good jobs. What I saw was I saw kids who I'd known for their whole lives go off to college, do everything that we had asked them to do as educators, come back and still not be competitive for the really good jobs here because during college they had worked in food service or retail to make ends meet. They hadn't been able to have a career building job, which is what they needed to do to be competitive for the, the IT jobs, the business operation jobs, the finance jobs that are here. And that really was crushing to me. For me, it's very personal to see young people who I know who are so capable, who are able, get stymied by a system that I actually was perpetuating, which was there's only one pathway to a career. Go off to college, come back, and that's the way to do it. And in D.C., when you look at 109th graders, two years ago, 14 out of those 109th graders would finish post-secondary after six years of graduating from high school. Only 14. Well, that number in the last two years has gone down to eight. And that is in the context of having 81% of all of the jobs in D.C. requiring a bachelor's degree and probably also requiring relevant work experience. And so... These three things that I think our young people need, the right credentials, so that's the AAs, the BAs, and often certifications too, but the relevant work experience so that they're really competitive for those entry-level positions, and then the social capital to navigate all of this and to support them once they, not only in getting a job, but once how to keep the job. So ultimately, what we're trying to do at CityWorks is recreate an education to employment pipeline and how it really can work for our students who are growing up here. Sobering statistics in both Indianapolis and Washington, D.C. And I hear such commitment and passion about 
the need to do something about this. So your organizations live at the intersection of programs and systems. And I really want to hear more about the story of where your organizations have been and where you are now in this work. So would love for you to walk us through a little bit about where you started chipping away at some of these larger systematic problems and how your approach or even your analysis of that problem has changed over time. Jenny, do you want to maybe pick up right where you left off as a starting point? Sure. Um, And because we're very young uh, as an organization, what I was sharing before is directly related to how we got started. And so we're only three years old at CityWorks DC. And the year before that was really, I got to spend thinking, being an entrepreneur in residence, really fully cementing. I think another way to describe it is, as I started as an educator, I framed everything around the achievement gap, especially the racial ethnic achievement gap. I then shifted towards thinking about that as an opportunity gap. And then it's just most recent, and this is where the city works comes in. It's like, it's actually all about the wealth gap. The work that we're doing is attending to that. And I think that where I see the wealth gap, it needs to be this combination of education, human services, workforce. It's all of these different things coming together to make sure that's in fact what we're addressing, not something ironically, as simple as the achievement gap. Jenny, I I appreciate what you had to say about your journey from achievement gap to wealth gap. Employee is a workforce board at its heart. And what that means is that we, uh, along with 500 plus others around the nation, receive federal funding, Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act dollars that are really geared toward trying to help people of all ages make the connections that they need to make to get into better jobs, whether that's more training, whatever that may be. And a lot of our work has traditionally been focused, in my mind, on putting band-aids on big issues that exist through our programmatic work. And I don't want to discount that work. I think it's really important because it's helped us to see the systems for what they are and the changes that we might want to go after. And we have still made a difference in lots of people's individual circumstances through these programs. But what I have certainly noticed is that a lot of the work we do traditionally in our work one centers, in our adult education centers is, you know, we're focusing on reactive issues, trying to help adults, young adults to get back to better solutions to try to get out of their current circumstance, help them find a better job, whatever, better education, whatever the case may be. And we work with youth too. That is a part of the traditional workforce board world as well. A lot of the work we do with youth is focused on youth who have tons and tons of barriers to getting into better opportunities. And what I started to notice is that we spent so much time and energy pouring our heart and soul into the work that is so important of helping these young people to get back on a better trajectory in life that I think we are missing some opportunities or noticing some opportunities maybe for changes to happen within the systems that have led them to that moment. You know, where I have come in my journey around how the problem has changed over time is that I believe that we have to work within our systems at a much earlier point of entry to try to help young people and adults to have better outcomes by changing the systems themselves to serve everybody more successfully than what happens today. We've got to blur those lines, really, between high school and post-secondary, in my opinion, and the working world. 
it's not just about stronger connection points, right? It's about these systems are siloed by design, not necessarily through malintent, but we are decades, generations away from the origin of these systems. And so appreciate both of you laying bare the evolution of your own thinking. And what that reveals to me is a deep curiosity that you bring to this work and a commitment to making sure that your work doesn't solve for an ill-defined problem, but really trying to interrogate and understand what's the real problem we're trying to solve for. And as I reflect on even these, these small stories, there's a thread about the reality that change is that it's nonlinear. And it can be really scary to go through those, those periods of trial and error, but I feel like it also asks us to be vulnerable and open to feedback in the sense of how do we ask for it? How do we offer it? So I would love to hear more too about the role feedback has played in the evolution of the work of your organization, but also in your own leadership and your stance in this space. Marie, what role has feedback played for you? I deeply value feedback and have come to appreciate it on a whole new level of late because of some work we've done to make sure that we are, at an organization level, receiving feedback from our young people that we're working to help in various ways, where we worked on a cybersecurity pathway and we were trained in how to do like really deep empathy interviews with students about their experiences, the why behind their experiences. And I found that type of feedback to be incredibly powerful. What was abundantly clear is that what the young people we interviewed relied the most on are the people they had the best relationships with, which in, sounds so obvious, but in some instances, that's teachers. In some instances, that was parents. Some instances, it was grandparents or, or friends. And what that meant for us as we were thinking about how do we really design a blurred line pathway where young people are graduating from post-secondary quickly on an accelerated time frame with work experiences and social capital and all the things that they would need to hopefully be successful in the IT world. What it meant is that we had to come up with lots of different ways on a very localized level to make sure that young people understood all the pathways that existed in different careers. That was really powerful for our team. I really appreciate hearing to the centering of voice of the end user and the humility it takes to stand back from what you think is the most important next step and really be curious and listen. And then your role is activating, well, what do we do with this new information? What do we do with these stories? Jenny, what about you and, and feedback? How do you approach it? How do you welcome it? How do you create the conditions where feedback is part of the culture? That's a great question. And I think very much echoing Marie's experience too, where asking lots of questions and doing empathy interviews with both young people who had finished high school and either not gone to college or stopped out of college. Another statistic, which is really powerful for us, is that 51% of our graduating high school students go to post-secondary, but 70% of them don't complete. And so we were asking young people, why is that? Why did you stop out? And are you interested in going back? What are the different components? So that particular effort really yielded that we needed post-secondary to look different than it's traditionally looked so that it wraps around our students and they needed affordability, not just in tuition, but also in the opportunity cost of they needed to be able to have a job and bring in income at the same time. 
They needed flexibility so that if they needed to take care of a loved one or if they had a job that they needed to keep. And then they really needed high support. And so this was a lot of them talked about how they weren't sure that they could make it through. So that feedback early on really helped us frame the thinking around post-secondary that we wanted to find. How do we find more flexible, affordable, high support post-secondary that could then allow for them to to fit the rest of life in. Certainly one of the things that then continues is that the programs that have grown out of that, the insights that we gained from those conversations, continuing to ask the young people who are engaged in those programs, is it working for you? And how can we make it better? Did we hit the mark? And so that's needless to say, I think vital. Personally, I think feedback has been invaluable and it's something that's takes a lot of time. And what I mean is that when you're trying to execute all the time, sometimes it's hard to slow down enough to hear what folks have to say. And so that the greatest gift I feel like is when people actually share their candid (laughs) sense of how we're doing, what we're doing. Part of it is like to make sure that I've committed the time to slow down enough to listen for it. And it's been where I feel like we become wise is when we listen to to feedback as opposed to being smart, which is trying to come up with a good answer that's well-researched and who we've talked to before. Jenny is like that old adage of related to design thinking around like nobody's smarter than the room itself. So if you're taking the feedback from all the people in the room, whoever your proverbial room is, and that could lead to the wisdom that you're talking about rather than one person's really smart ideas being the only way that some sort of design could go. So I love that. Yeah. And it's a theme we've heard in conversations this year, this idea of slowing down and creating space that allows for a different kind of, not just listening, but a different kind of listening and a different kind of learning or even unlearning if we're willing and being well positioned to enter that space of unlearning and sort of shedding what it requires from us, from our places of positional authority or informal authority to really hold that curiosity. And you both signaled the value of empathy research and really listening to people. What else have you learned about the types of values or practices that as a field or as leaders in this space are most important for us to uphold if we really want to create the conditions for change? I believe more than I used to in the value of incremental change. And I would say that in general, in the work I've done over the last couple of decades, that what I strive for are the big disruptive changes that might really change. But in order for that to actually happen, there are so many small changes that we should take notice of and appreciate, I think, more than I often do. Maybe it's this notion of going back to slowing down too. whether they are policy changes that are small at an, a company because they've decided to hire young people or whether they are institutional changes that we've seen recently where our local university will hopefully soon have access to direct admits from some of our high schools. They've, they're simplifying processes. Those changes are not very exciting to talk about. They don't make any headlines most of the time, but without them, we don't get to the bigger disruptive changes that will make the news, if you will. So 
for me, it's like all these other little things that are maybe under the tip of the iceberg that matter that we have to make happen. So that's a practice that I try to celebrate more and try to make a bigger deal out of as a leader in our community when when they do occur within the stakeholder groups I can. Just picking up on a thread there too, I feel like one of the phrases that really rang true when um, during that year that I spent as an entrepreneur in residence is that we are programs rich and systems poor. And it is much easier to understand a program. It's much easier to understand a specific outcome. It's the systems work that is hard to sometimes see. And that's where I think that the slowing down is often needed because when I'm moving fast, I'm thinking of my to-do list, I'm getting the next thing done. But often I think the systems chain is, as Marie was suggesting, hidden. It's in that iceberg that's not on the top that you can see. I really like the idea of how Marie was saying to celebrate the small incremental systems changes, which aren't particularly sexy and don't necessarily get headlines, but are critical to changing the way that the system itself works. And and I think that the slowing down, stepping back has to do with like how do we see the big picture and how do we see all of these little pieces? They may not be little. They're just many, many, many of them, the complexity to be able to zoom out and see that bigger picture. And one of the things I hear in both of your comments here, which I appreciate, is uh, let's not be reductionists. This isn't an either or proposition. This is not about let's just build more and stronger programs. This isn't about just change all the systems until we can catch up, right? That these programs or models need a systemic view to hang their hat on. And in particular, one of the things I hear you talking about is some of those small changes become Trojan horses that grease the wheels for more innovation or more radical transformation because they've changed something about the way we work or how we are oriented toward what we're working toward and the way we partner. And so thank you both for naming that explicitly. One of the many things I admire about your leadership is your dogged commitment to working with partners. I see you building coalitions. I see you reaching out to forge partnerships and working with them to, to establish a clear and bold vision and a change agenda. So when you think about your experience doing that in the local context, I'm wondering if there's any lessons that you've been able to extract that might be our learning edge as a field. I think that our learning edge is how we need to integrate applied learning into what young people get to experience to prepare them. And I think that we've had previous efforts of, at applied learning, vocational education, school to work in various different forms that also unfortunately had some inequities built into them. And so one of the things that it's tricky is like, how do we revisit this pedagogy um, that is of applied learning without having, bringing back with it some of the assumptions um, some of the mindsets that were there. One of the things I was thinking about from just based on our earlier conversation of the systems change work is we we didn't talk as much about the mindset shifts. And so I think that that's underlying all of it. And mindset shifts often are incremental in terms of putting stories together and what the data looks like. And so I think that the building coalitions, shifting, having a change agenda and shifting mindsets all go together. And so for the edge that I see around this applied learning is how do we figure out how to 
give young people more opportunity to practice these core competencies that we know are needed to be successful in high-wage, high-demand jobs and do that at a level of intensity that isn't just around exposure, which is where privilege is the mitigating factor. <laughs> and so privileged kids get to, to have those experiences in ways that our students who are growing up low income or who don't have that social capital. Jenny, I just want to add on to what you were saying around applied learning. It needs to be the edge is not just applied learning where young people are having more opportunity during classroom time to practice being in the careers that are interesting to them and do it at a, like you said, like at a level of intensity that is enough, it's happening enough that they are really able to build their skills and their competencies. It's also that they're getting credit for that time in the high school space, which is, I think, what you mean by applied learning, but I just want to name it that it is that they are getting the credit through their work experiences rather than having to do double the work in both the academic preparation and the work preparation. It's really creating that system where we trust the businesses enough that when they say they know how to communicate, that students don't have to take a comms 101 course in the same way that they have had to in the past, or certainly not for the same numbers of credits, because two of the three credits count for the work that they were doing on the job in communications. That for me is definitely on the edge of where we need to go and a really tough conversation because it absolutely shifts the models that many of us are used to in the post-secondary and the high school space. I also would say on the narrative change space, when I think about a learning edge related to narrative change, it all does go together. But I just really look forward to a day where I talk to a lot of 10th graders. And when we talk about what they might want to do in the future, they're not just saying they're all going to go to college. They're talking about a variety of pathways that exist that are all post-secondary in nature and all of them are valued in a way that is similar to our traditional idea of college. And I think that is trying to get that messaging right and trying to not have it look exclusionary or like we're trying to track certain students or something like that is really tough. But I think that if we together as a coalition can figure that out, that it would be super powerful in all of our communities. Marie, could you talk a little bit for a moment there about that toughness? You and Jenny both framed uh, the beginning of this conversation with some data. And so you're talking about these strategies and you're talking about young people. Why is this for you a practice about centering racial equity in this work? My observation of your work is that this is, yes, this is good for everyone, but this is an imperative right now as we think about the inequities we see and the racial disparities in access, experience, and outcomes in the credentialing space and in terms of gaining a foothold in the labor market? Our most diverse populations are in the high school space, all right? We have representative of our community. If we are roughly 30% African-American in Indianapolis, our high schools represent that. And so there's a rich, untapped population of talent available within that high school space. 
And because of a dominant narrative that the only pathway to success is college, and because of some of the barriers that Jenny was talking about earlier, what we see is a huge drop off, particularly in communities of color, where these young people are not able to complete traditional paths post-secondary, don't have the social capital, don't have the same resources, the same privilege that, that maybe their white counterparts do. And so it is an imperative because by offering other types of pathways, by helping these young people to build their confidence while they're still in high school on what might be possible, by having businesses see the potential of young adults of, from all different walks of life, I think we can work to start changing some of that narrative about the many different ways that we can have pathways to success. And I'll just give one quick example of a young, a young woman in our community who is finishing up her second year of a youth apprenticeship. And she was not sure what she wanted to do, was very uncertain that she was going to go on to post-secondary. And because of her experience working with a large employer in Indianapolis, she's now got a full ride to a university, but will continue her work experience and her apprenticeship with this big employer and should have loads of opportunities available to her at many different stops along the way. So even if something doesn't work out with her post-secondary experience, she's still going to have other options. So it's multiplying her options. And that that just doesn't happen enough when the narrative is your only path to success is college. Jenny, what about you? CityWorks DC centering conversation in your community and partnerships around racial equity. What is the role of CityWorks DC in advancing that conversation? This narrative change that Marie reintroduced into our conversation. I mean, I think that if sometimes I think about it as, you know, if there are these three things that I think that all young people need to be economically mobile. And that again is the credentials, the social capital and the relevant paid work experience so that they can be competitive. You know, as somebody who was in K-12 education and then also overseeing education for the city, we focus education on the first one, the credential part. And we know the other two things, the relevant paid work experience and the social capital are key but we don't build them into our education system in a way that's predictable. And so those are the two things that that privilege can mitigate. So the racial equity piece is central to how do we take those other two pieces of what we know economic mobility are, are ingredients for economic mobility and build it into what we are sure they're all going to get and not leave it up to chance, leave it up to privilege. That's the way I often think of we're centering it by making sure that all the ingredients, all the key ingredients are available to all students and not just those who have access to privilege. Well, Jenny Niles, Marie McIntosh, thank you both so much for joining this conversation today, for your contributions, your voice, your awesomeness, your leadership. I continue to have the privilege of learning alongside of you. And thank you very much for um, participating in this today. Thank you, Kyle. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Marie. Thanks, Kyle. What I heard from today's guests is that change work asks us to be open to what we don't know we don't know and to follow the story the data tells. As practitioners and leaders, we need to remain open to and curious about the fact that we will need to change over time to meet the current moment 
while also incorporating the learning and insight we've collected along the way. And finally, as Marie reminds us, no one is smarter than the room itself. It is our work to lead and learn toward change through listening, through seeking and being open to insights from our teams, from our partners, from youth, and from communities. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more about Jenny's work in Washington, D.C. and Marie's in Indianapolis. In our next episode and season finale, we'll be tying together themes from across this season and last and exploring what change-making at the national scale will look like. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and tune in for our next episode. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF, signing off until next time.